Hi, this episode is brought to you by the Raw Yoga 200-hour trauma-informed flow yoga teacher training. If you're looking for a teacher training, uh, we highly recommend our training. Let me tell you why. You see, the main reason why our training would be a good idea right now is because we're living in this bizarre post-pandemic world. And basically through a lot of, no matter where you sit, there's been so much fear and confusion and information and everybody has experienced a degree of trauma. And so to learn about trauma and actually understand what trauma-informed living and teaching and communicating is, can be one of the greatest tools to offer yourself, but also those in your life, not just maybe the students you would teach, but in your other relationships. So This training goes well beyond teaching yoga asana and is an opportunity for personal transformation and understanding how to support others in their challenges and and fear, really. Mm, There's heaps more information about the teacher training on our website, www.rawaware.com. If you click on the training tab, or you can go directly there, www.rawaware.com slash 200 hours. So that's 200HR, and that will take you directly to the page. Also, you can always send us an email, studio at rawyoga.co.nz. Or you could just give us a call. Absolutely. You know, we'd love to chat about it and let you know kind of what it's all about and you can get to know us a little more. Uh, We get to know you and see if it's the right space to continue your journey. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, I would suggest that it is the right space. 100%. (laughs) All right, we'd love to have you on board. Drop us a line. Otherwise, enjoy this episode. The Radical Awareness Podcast with Nicole and John. Welcome to another episode of the Radical Awareness Podcast. Now, in today's episode, we will be speaking to a dear friend of ours, Jessica Morphin, as she discusses her journey to awareness uh, through the realm of death and we speak in quite some detail about her brother's suicide um, and the effects that had on her and her mother as, as well. I think you'll find that this episode will really bring a new perspective on what is often considered a taboo subject, um, the subject of suicide, the subject of death in general. But it has been a real privilege getting to know Jess as we have over the past 18 months or a year or so since she's been uh, in our lives as uh, one day she just walked into our yoga studio and she very quickly became a big part of the community uh, joining up for our 200 hour and then 300 hour training um, to become a qualified yoga teacher as a a medium to share her wisdom and to share all of her gifts in the world. And we're looking forward to the day that uh, her project of uh, taking her brother Ronnie's story and turning it into uh, a film or potentially a, a series of films 
a great example of how a healing journey can become a very creative outlet and how a creative outlet can become uh, an integral part of a healing journey. But that's enough for me. Um, we will kick into the interview. So sit back and enjoy this chat with Jess. Well, welcome Jess to this episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Um, We're going to go straight in. I'll let you introduce yourself and then... um, We'll kick you off from there, but I'll give you the mic now and um, let us know a little bit about yourself before we begin. Cool. Thank you. Um, I'm Jess. I am living here in New Zealand. I am originally uh, born in Mexico, but raised mainly in Switzerland and through traveling, uh, fell in love with a Kiwi guy and um, followed my heart and moved here to New Zealand and yeah and I am I'm a mother of two sons two beautiful sons and um, yeah I feel very at home here in New Zealand uh, in between the two very opposite words worlds that I come from, Switzerland and Mexico, they <laughs> have very different cultures. So I think that's why I feel comfortable here because it's a bit of a middle ground. And since I've been here, um, yeah, I've just uh, grown more and more and um, have met amazing people such as you guys. <laughs> and um, yeah, have been on quite quite a journey yes mm, and we're indeed. going to talk about that journey in depth today because i think i should say we have known you nearly nearly two years maybe mm. a year and a half at this point um through the studio and obviously the podcast is about awareness and we talk a lot about trauma and different things and how people go through their own personal transformation and so obviously we know quite a bit about your story and <laughs> i want to say we love your story but that also doesn't give it much credit because you know when when bad or not so lovely things happen, um, it's not really something to love. But it's amazing witnessing people come through that and transform something challenging into something beautiful. Uh, so we're really privileged to have you here and to be sharing your story and to be recording it on such a medium <laughs> as a podcast, um, especially our one, <laughs> because it's through our stories that we really are able to open up for ourselves and kind of be in that process of reflection, but also allow others to open up and see their own stories in a different way and use it as a tool for awareness and healing. So we're just really grateful to be sitting here with you in this very sacred space, because as we'll go into it is a a sacred and profound story. It's a very precious story and one that we think deserves to be told. So John's going to start with, Give me a question just to kind of open you up to where you want to begin. Yeah, we're going to deep dive straight in with the the big question. Um, and this is how I framed it today. It says, how 
did the trauma of death lead to a place of your awareness and awakening? Yeah, big question. <laughs> First of all, thank you so much for having me and letting me tell my story and our story. Um, it's the story of mainly my brother, um, Roni. And yeah, I'm just super grateful that I have the opportunity to tell the story. So yeah, um, my brother was born uh, 14 years after me. So he was, uh, there was quite a big age gap and that was in Switzerland. And um, so I always felt a bit more like a mother to him or a bit like, like a teacher. And I also, my profession is a teacher. So um, yeah, I always saw myself a little bit like, like a teacher to him. And, and um, <clears throat> when he was about 13 years old, I moved to New Zealand and so I wasn't as close in touch with him anymore. And also he was entering his teenage years. Um, so his, yeah, he wasn't too good at communicating, um, uh, especially through uh, text messages and so on. So I felt like um, our close bond that we shared was it was like almost like clouds on top of it. I felt like I couldn't really reach him well anymore. And so um, a few years later, when he was at the age of 19, um, we noticed that something was not quite right with him because he was having a lot of um, uh, body physical um signs showing up he couldn't really often go to work or function well anymore he was uh, vomiting a lot um, and we thought oh there must be something wrong on this on this on a physical level and did all the tests blood tests and stuff and nothing came out um, but he started to have seizures and he ended up in hospital and now I what we learned there from a really um, wise nurse is that um, those physical reactions are always a communicator and it doesn't necessarily have to be on a physical level at all but more so on an emotional level so she noticed that it had to be um, something to do with his inner world with his um, uh, uh, psycho uh, psychosomatic uh, symptoms and um, he then, my mum uh, pressured him to open up what's really going on. And he, he did for the first time open up that he was um, suicidal, that he was um, struggling with depression for nearly five years of his young life. So from the age of 14. And that he just has a profound wish to, to die, to not be on this earth. And so that was um, a real shock, obviously. Um, but at the same time, for me, it was also a relief because he finally opened up. I felt like, oh, I kind of felt that there was something and I just couldn't really understand what was happening. And I thought, okay, now, now we can look at it together. Um, but I was still in New Zealand and um, he was willing to go to a mental health institution 
to kind of, um, yeah, to start getting better um, and find out what's going on with him. And uh, he went to two different mental health institutions, um, but got released from both of them really quickly. And um, after his release, he was sent back to live with his dad. And um, there was a lot of uh, tension between in that environment as well. Um, my mum and his dad, um, they ha went through an ugly divorce, which was um, also a key factor for, for my brother's depression. Um, but yeah, on top of other things, teenage um, pains and um, a, a, a heartache he went through and mobbing at school and just living in a confusing world. Um, lots of things that came together. So we were really surprised that he got released so early and uh, sent back into the same environment as he came from. But he was eager to do that and he was very clear in his message to tell me I should not come and I should not worry about him. He doesn't want more guilt um, um, and that uh, I should trust him, that he will do um, what's right for him. And yeah, my mum was still very panicky and she realised now he's, uh, it's just not right. And so she involved another psychiatrist that was just her neighbour and uh, just wanted to have all hands on deck. Um, but uh, yeah, the psychiatrist um, saw him once and thought like um, his trauma is not really, nothing really traumatic happened in his life and didn't really acknowledge his, his feelings. He was just looking at the story, but not looking at him in person. And what no matter the story, that what matters is what he feels inside. Mm. And these are real. And so he just, uh, I believe he felt misunderstood on all, on all levels. And um, yeah, to, Nearly, yeah, two, three weeks later, um, I got a phone call. We were just traveling back from Tauranga from um, meeting our best friends. And uh, we were in the car and the, uh, the phone was on loudspeaker. We had the kids in the back and it was my mum on the call where she had to tell me that my brother um, decided, did decide to to end his life on this earth. And um, that was obviously a real, real shock. And we talked for maybe about half an hour, 40 minutes. And <clears throat> yeah, the kids were super quiet in the back, which never happens, happened before. But it was this intense moment of um, disbelief and shock but also um, the heart was just cracked open in an instant and I remember it was raining like like monsoon raining we had to stop the car apart from what was what was emotionally going on it was just the weather was exactly that we couldn't move forward we had to stop and um, 
And yeah, it was this agony of, I want to, I, I can't believe it. I want to be with him. I want to see him, but also I want to be with my mom. And obviously it's a long journey from New Zealand to Switzerland. I couldn't be there straight away. And, um, and yeah, just a lot of, a lot of, um, feelings and numbness at the same time almost. But, um, through this, uh, heart cracking open, um, it was also an immense love that came in. So straight away, um, my mum and I said, like, um, Roni, we're not, we're not mad at you. We're not, um, angry. We're just deeply, deeply sorry for your pain. And we're just, yeah, we're just so sorry. We, we let you down is how we felt. And, um, yeah, so in, in the next few days, in the next day, we had to pack and, um, obviously fly over to, to Switzerland. But, um, because it's like, it's like all the noise is cancelled out, like something happens. And I think I can compare it to when a child is born. It's quite similar. Um, when the heart is so open, why that be through love or pain? You start opening up to the universe's language and you start seeing signs and feeling things. So, for example, all of a sudden I had this immense urge to hug a tree um, at home, a kauri tree, which is a sacred um, uh, native New Zealand tree and went to hug this tree and wanted to burst into tears immediately. But this feeling of um, comfort and all is well and you are completely nurtured and held came washed over me and I couldn't even cry. It was just a, a feeling of complete relief. Mm. And I felt it was... Yeah, my brother um, communicating to me and showing me how he feels right now. Because for me in my mind, I just saw him at the at at the um, place where it happened, and he chose a very um, not necessarily for him, but for us, uh, a very violent death. Um, he he um, he was very sure in his in his doings and he wanted it to be absolute so he chose to um lay his head on on train tracks and um was in the middle of the night and he made sure no one would be involved or get hurt and he left his id and it was well well thought out um but yeah it was obviously a very um absolute and to look at a very violent death um, that needs a lot of a lot of strength to do mm -hmm. that a mm -hmm. lot of strength and um, at that point I interpreted it I interpreted it as um, complete um, distress and helplessness um, and I just was feeling so heartbroken that I wasn't there and mm -hmm. couldn't just hug him and be there in this moment with him 
Um, but he showed me later on as well, but in this first tree hug that this is what he chose and this is what was his path and that he is, he feels complete release, relief now. Mm. Um, and so I took a little uh, branch of that um, kauri tree with me and as we went to Switzerland. And because all the noise was blocked out, I was able to fly on this long journey um, with two little kids in my calmest self that I've ever been. I've never been such a calm mum mm. than in these moments. Wow. Um, because I think you just have to function, but also you just see the world so differently. And yeah, um, and so every the, the, the journey went really, really smooth. And we were on the second flight and there was a gentleman in front of us and the kids were behaving so well and it was already the second flight. So we've been traveling already for, I don't know, 15 hours or something. And knowing that we're going to, a, you know, to a really intense um, event. And this gentleman in front of us was getting really upset because the kids were watching TV and had their feet against the, against the seat. And he was just beside himself. And um, I didn't say anything back then. And I wish I had. It's like, man, we are on this flight with two little kids. It's our second flight. We have another 10 hours in front of it. And we're going to the funeral of my brother who <laughs> just died, you know, who, who took his eh? own life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just puts everything so much in 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 perspective and um yeah when we when we arrived um there uh we, it was very very hectic um my partner murray was looking after um the two boys and i tried to kind of hold space for my mum and organizing the funeral which took place two days later and uh yeah, and also to go and see my brother. My mum, my mum and I really, really, um, uh, admire that she was from the start. She was so driven by, by love. She wanted to see Roni, um, straight away. And the authorities said like, no, no, you can't do that. It's too much of a shock. And, <laughs> And, um, but it's her son, right? Yeah, like, no right it's her right to mm. see him and she can choose for herself. And she was not scared to see him literally in two pieces. Um, and she needed to be with him. She needed to wrap him in a blanket and, and give him all his things that he loved and just to be with him. And I was quite, um, unsure at first if I wanted to see him as well but I haven't seen physically seen him in two years and I just wanted to be there for my mum as well and yeah I want I do I, I did want to see him but also I, I I was scared I have never seen a dead a dead person before yeah. I was always fascinated um with the thought of it um but yeah uh never thought that this would be my first encounter with a dead body. And I'm very, very glad I did. Mm -hmm. um, 
because in my mind it would have been so much worse than it actually was mm. and it was really nice to see him and recognize him and at the same time to feel that okay but that's not him anymore mm. and as we were as I was looking at him in the coffin and touching him there was this window and this massive tree outside a beautiful tree and the the leaves were just swaying in the wind and I could just totally feel like this is where he was or this is how he speaks to me and he mm. was telling me it's 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 okay this where is part of the of the letting go but um trust it and um yeah and just kind of leading with love and trust rather than letting this the, the fear taking over was was very was very healing for me I think otherwise I would have had nightmares or yeah I just could not have let go of that imaginary mm -hmm. picture that so wasn't choice. even real yeah mm. um so then we um organized this beautiful funeral we had um uh, washing lines with all with uh, printout photos and baby clothes and things that got important for in his life throughout his life um, drawings that he made or or um, his headphones and things like that and um, yeah just had had a a beautiful um, ceremony and in this ceremony um, I was um, saying some words as well and then um, uh, we listened to Spirit Birds from Xavier Rudd and so um, because uh, I was writing um, the announcement for in the paper and I used this analogy that he was like a, um, a, a featherless bird mm. captivated in this earth and now he has um, found his wings and was um, able to be free again as free as he, we wished he could have been on on earth mm. um, and in that moment I kind of reluctantly or automatically made a promise to him that I would I would tell his story but also I was a bit scared like yeah how am I ever going to do that but I just witnessed myself promising to him that somehow I will um, tell his story and after that song, um, his best friend held a speech mm. and I've never met him. And because I've been so removed of his teenage years, I, I was, I didn't know who his friends really were or what he really was up to. And, um, and that was another thing that was really, um, heartbreaking that I felt oh, we've missed out on getting to know each other really on a deep level and for especially for me to know him on a more adult level mm. because I've before was more in that kind of, yeah, mother, sister, teacher role and um, that didn't probably allow me to really listen and see him and his essence and his in his teachings 
And so I listened to his best friend and he was speaking an absolute, it blew my mind, his speech, and it was straight into my heart. And I realized, oh my God, I am so proud of Oni that he is his best friend. And that just um, tells me so much about Oni as well. And, um, and his best friend and I, we got really close really quickly and are still in very close contact. And this beautiful relationship formed out of that mm. where we are both feel very close to Roni through having each other and having exactly these um, conversations we both wished we could still have with, with Roni. Um, yeah, so it felt like this whole incident, this whole, yeah, his, his death was kind of a rebirth for me and for many people, for my mum especially as well. And, um, and after, after the funeral, um, you're still kind of on a high or you're pumped with adrenaline because of the shock and you don't, um, the gravity probably hasn't fully set in um, and that takes a long time and it's reoccurring um, but yeah we were kind of left with this um, this puzzle piece and trying to find out okay what what happened why why what what was going through his head what were, were his last steps what um, yeah, why that, that question and what could we have done and um, a lot of guilt plays into that, especially from a perspective of, of, the, of a mother. For my mum, it was super, super hard and I think because I wanted to support and protect her, I, could, I just went into kind of action mode and it felt like a bit of an investigation to find out what was really happening. So we started talking to all the doctors and psychiatrists that were involved and that was only, yeah, for maybe two months prior to his death. So all in all, it then happened really quickly. But we got, because of confidentiality, you're not they don't communicate with you and so um, we had to dig quite deep and ask for the conversations and we 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 got them we could talk to all of them but it um, highlighted for us that we didn't really get the answer we were looking for we thought like okay what what was his sickness what was his disease <laughs> and they um you know, you think like, okay, what was the problem? What would have been the solution? But obviously it's a lot more complicated than that. But um, they told us, oh, he had an adolescence identity disorder, disorder and um, uh -huh. combined with drug abuse. And it's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, that doesn't yeah. tell me anything. Yeah. <laughs> and you didn't know, oh, because the system won't look at the whole picture. <laughs> exactly. and. I mean, that is adolescence, right? Mm. That is the teenage yeah. years. It's, it's the, the identity finding process. And, and um, yeah, so they just 
told us what drugs they gave him and but he it didn't it didn't work before he was on kind of self-medication before and um what we didn't know is that he was um doing more drugs than we thought like we knew he was smoking a lot of weed um and the amount of it was concerning and we tried to um yeah talk about it and involve um help help with that and um but we didn't know that he was also um mainly um into lsd and psychedelics and that were that came quite to a shock for us mm -hmm. because um he never we asked him and he never he never admitted it and now we know that he never thought that we could understand he was mm. very fearful that we would panic and we would um isolate him from it or but not really understand um the essence of it or why mm. or what he gained from it and at that point we weren't we weren't we didn't understand yet um but yeah, so the doctors focused on that. Oh, you need to do rehab and, and gave him some other medication that didn't work. And, um, he, and he, they weren't involving his family at all. And we were saying, like, in hindsight, um, you need to involve the family. You need to involve, um, the environment of a person because you can't just in isolation look look at it because it's always in correlation with the environment and um, confidentiality yes but you know we can still have a conversation all together and then we can step out and he can say things he wants on his own and you, just beautiful but you know it's also that thing that he was i think you touched on self-medicating right yeah. it's so easy to say oh this young adolescent was taking drugs mm. and being bad i'm like no he wasn't he did experience trauma because we all do and his spiritual health wasn't being nourished and actually within many systems of even universities and medicine currently to this day they're using lsd and marijuana as healing for psychiatric let's call them disorders but it's more just the human spirit not being fully understood especially if you have a very wide scope of understanding and, and a sensitive like ronnie was is um so he was taking the medicines that would have helped him without the appropriate support you know and you've got to yeah. wonder like when he was even telling these professionals that if they hadn't been lazy and if they'd actually opened their mind to look at what some of the leading research in their fields are they would see that what he was choosing to use is actually medicine and could have supported and exactly. i think i can see it on your face and i feel it here for us this frustration that because of egoic lazy doctors and i'm saying and a system that fails person after person and he actually was leading the wisdom you know was trying to say hey these things really work and there's something else to my experience that i want to explore and maybe it was through the guilt and being misunderstood and being pushed into a corner he was like this is the only thing that i can do to wake them up to say hey actually there is another way of being you know and just exactly and he was terrified of of rehab like he wanted to he, he he acknowledged and noticed that he was getting addictive and he wanted to 
stop that, but also he knew he he can't. It was his survival strategy. He needed it. Yeah. He, he needed it. And, um, and what's so frustrating is, I mean, we noticed with our own um, dialogues we had with these doctors after his death that they were like not trauma informed or they were not um, sitting in their empathy mm. much at all. It was all about pointing the finger and definitely pointing them away from them. And um, can I ask, was the the privacy that you came up against, yeah. um, was that something that is policy-based or is that something that, that Ronnie requested? Did no, he that, want was policy, that was policy-based yeah. and that's a really good question because at some point my mum felt like she really wanted to go into the um, session with Ronnie and, but then she felt she, mm. yeah, then she... She didn't insist on it because she felt, well, he is in good hands. He's in professional hands. And we trust these people, And we right? trust these people. And that's one of the biggest learnings um, that my mom took away from that. Like, don't, don't give away your power to a certificate, mm. someone with a certificate or someone with a white... With a title. With a title. Capital letters behind their name. Yeah. yeah. Who's known someone for X amount of minutes rather than X amount of years. And exactly. the system is based on pushing blame. You know, when we've talked to other professionals as well, you know, around working with certain, let's say, high-risk people uh, on the uh, in the psychiatric realm and mental health and suicide um, kind of space nobody wants to take them no. nobody in the system wants them that's literally how our system is framed right now and there is this delusional idea and it doesn't matter if you're in switzerland or new zealand it is the same and it is delusional to think that our mental health structures look after people like ronnie because they don't and actually they are the ones that are to blame for this death in my opinion if you were going to push blame that's where the finger should be because there are so many opportunities for those so-called professionals who want to be the ones who are taking responsibility, that's why you get into that field, I would assume, don't want to take it. And then even afterwards, to discredit to the grieving family, to discredit and still push a finger and to still push blame is so disturbing and so violent and so against any oath to not do harm. You know, but they're in the medical profession. If the oath is do no harm first, where exactly have they done that? Yeah, and you and your mother I think have considered it to themselves. Yeah, to themselves, protect myself at all cost, whilst being in a field where I'm supposed to be helping to serve the population. And I mean, this is where I get very ranty because all of our structures and systems are based on these foundations, and it should say, "Do harm first, and protect yourself, and then take all the money and push their voices aside." <laughs> you know? Which is why this story is oh. phenomenal because Jess and her mum have done the opposite. You know, you're yeah. like, like you just said, we're taking our power back. Yeah, and and she that's one of her biggest regrets that mm. she didn't listen to the biggest power of all, the mother instinct. Mm -hmm. She she discredited her own mother instinct because she didn't feel worthy or wise enough uh, to trust that more than you know, especially a Swiss mental health system. It's supposed mm. to be so mm -hmm. good. And, but it can't, always comes down to, and I'm not saying every doctor is, you know, bad. It just, it comes so down to the individual person and how mm -hmm. aware they are and how much work they have done with themselves.
mm-hmm. inner work. Yes, that, the awareness work. The awareness work. <laughs> yeah. and, and, then, and then they can radiate that. But what especially <clears throat> this lady was radiating was the exact, the exact opposite. And we found out that she has lost a child herself. And I think that's where, where this was coming from. But because she is so at the front line, like when someone is distraught, that that's they reach her first from that whole region and what she does is while we had this discussion someone called her an emergency young no a mother a mother called her she took the call in front of us um, and a distressed mother about another again a son a young teenager's son that was, she was scared that he is um, suicidal. So what she said is that he should call her to make an appointment with her. So he's already so luckily calling out for help to his mom and she's calling out for help and she puts the ball into his court. And it was the same with my brother. He, when he came, when he got released from like his two week a mental health institution stay um, he needed to he needed more therapy but she said oh you have to look up an appropriate clinic that works long term with psychosomatic uh, for psychosomatic symptoms and and so on so it's like you are helpless like that is that your yeah. job and um it's bizarre eh? it's like this type of bypassing of oh you've got to take responsibility for your own life which in the essence if we zoom out kind of from a universal law point of view 100 percent we take radical responsibility for our lives but when you've been born into a society where you've taken away all of their power to then in your weakest moment say now take all the responsibility we've taken all your power from birth we've turned you practically into a slave but now that you actually have completely broken down and you need something we'll be like oh you need to take responsibility for your life Mm. um actually in any real human society what happens is someone gets knocked down someone's having a hard time and the whole community sweep in it's like what i would call the hands-on approach you know where it's like whether you're sick or you broke your leg or you're having you know your mental health or you want to take your own life it's like hands on currently my hands are on john uh to be like hey have we got you what do you need like you just stay there let's do this do you want some soup do you want to chat about your feelings can i rub your feet you know shall we do some type of movement to release it out of your body should we go for a walk and no one would leave them until they felt like they were back and connected with the land with each other with themselves that is how human society works that's not rocket science i'm not talking some complex theory in psychology because the more we make it so complex the further away we are from life we're treating him like some bizarre robot where it's like are these symptoms that are in a box that's separate from the rest of your life it's like no his whole somatic experience his whole self needed nourishment and you you guys coming back being like but we wanted to be hands-on but no one asked us to do that yeah because we didn't know also because we've all been so split from ourselves and split from each other even within the family unit and they were even creating that more divide in the family unit rather than coming together. And it is just someone needs to be responsible for this. And like you touched on, this isn't 
even an attack on an individual human. This, I am directly attacking the system, the structures in place that are so dark and actually evil at their core that are just hurting people, whether they take their life or not, they are taking them away from their freedom and the right to be themselves and the right to feel connected to their community and to the whole. And none of this is okay. And the only, I think, the beautiful thing of what Ronnie has given to all of us, to so many, because his he's now stretched out so wide in his gift of taking his own life, is that we are taking the, the power back and seeing how we can be in community and seeing how we can heal together, right, and share together and listen and start to actually uplift. And, you know, it's an interesting time with the pandemic because it's the same thing. Mm. All they're sick, lock them in a room by themselves because you might get sick and save yourself. When did we get to this disconnected point in humanity? If somebody is sick in your life, do not lock them in a room and run away. Go to them, hands on and look after them. Go to them, always. It doesn't matter if they've got coronavirus or they want to take their own life or whatever it is. We go to the people and we help them heal and we do it together. And you know what? If we all die because of that, that was what was supposed to happen. But are you trying to save your own life by yourself to not take any blame, to be completely disconnected and live on an island is delusional. And what are you doing it for? To live by yourself in a box like a robot? Yeah. I digress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the interesting thing is um, what Roni stated and what we also know from a journal, journal that he's left us, um, is what he um, gained the most of while he was in the mental health institution was being around the other patients mm -hmm. and connecting with them and actually helping them. Mm -hmm. He he felt that he had so much to offer, mm -hmm. and that was that's when he sparked up again, and that that's when he said, actually, Purpose. I want to change my career. Um, he was in the uh, architecture uh, sector before, but I want to change my career and I want to um, do something in 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 that in that healing space, in that space where I can offer some advice and healing because I'm going through Beautiful. the same thing, mm. and I am trying to learn from that. And um, yeah, so he could help. He, he had a lovely conversation with one of the other inmate, inmates, <laughs> inpatients, and, uh, and he was so uplifted from that. And that same lady who spoken before, who is at the front line, she then said like, look, because um, he actually asked if he ever can do a practicum there and he can oh. start um, uh, that, that would give him some perspective in the future, but um, that got crushed uh, because Unbelievable. Not, not even not even she didn't even get back to him. And um, it's how probably you know how how can you even think you can do such work when you are sick or mentally ill? But mm. in fact, it's exactly the other way around. Like you need to have to go through your own pain and understand yes. yourself so he that you can teach. more qualified, I can just say this without even knowing, more qualified than most of the people in that institution. Yeah. And I know you know that too. And yeah. luckily, uh, one good thing is that this lady then um, half a year later, maybe a year later, um, 
got yeah she's not working there anymore mm. so um we hope a little drop has landed and yeah only a little drop but um something that um it was important to us to kind of talk about it and for them to look again what has happened here and because in the statements they even knew he even mentioned that he has a death wish and he even mentioned train tracks and and train so that was in the written statement and um yeah so that was quite um horrific for us to to read um but yeah <clears throat> and after after that kind of uh, first obvious, let's say, medical side of it, we, we wanted to dig deeper and we wanted to really um, find out um, and feel and, and see Ronnie and his essence. So um, we, we uh, started to go through all of his belongings and he left us a lot. He left us his cell phone with uh, codes and his computer and a journal and we had access to so much. Um, we're in close contact with uh, his best friend and some other friends and and um, the girl he was very much in love with. And <clears throat> so we kind of approached that face with a lot of curiosity and non-judgment rather than um, rather than fear or um, yeah fear and maybe responsibility and not able to to look at it and we just had to look at all of it in detail and really get to know him and there were it was a really interesting phase because we would see his anger and frustration as well um, but also his humor and so much and he was such a fun um, intelligent very intelligent very very sensitive empathetic mm. um, being and um, but so torn inside and so torn by by the world and not being able to make sense of it mm. And a lot of push and pull um, also from his dad, who has quite a lot of narcissistic tendencies, and from his mum, who's struggling with um, self-worth and um, can easily be manipulated because of that or gives away her, her power um, because of not being able to, to trust herself. And so he was... Yeah, swaying from one to the other, um, and then he had the same internal struggle. But um, we went through all his things, and he—I never knew he was—he was having all this fun, crazy clothes, and he was going to go up parties, and he was—he um, loved everything to do with play and colorful, and and um, and um, LSD became. Uh, psychedelics became really important to him because he, as he states, that's when he feels the true love of nature and of mm. the universe and that's when he feels at peace and um, that's when everything makes sense. And, um, and at first, um, you know, if he was still alive, 
my mum and I, we would have been utterly shocked and we would have, we have to do something. We have mm. to save him. Mm. We have to take, get, get him away from the evil mm. and, um, we have to turn him back into a slave. Yeah. You know? And, <laughs> um, but because the worst thing has happened already, um, we were not in a place where we needed to take responsibility, where we felt like, oh, we need to take action because it was too late already anyway. So we could just, we could just approach it with more, with, with more curiosity and less judgment mm. and what just, yeah, what a gift. Mm. And we tried all the things on and, <laughs> and, and my mum, um, smoked weed for the first time and his his best friend was there as well and it was just a really hilarious evening or just picture you know and I know that Orny was there like laughing his head off and um just that sur the surrealness of that of that um situation and I think that's really what he was scared of that we wouldn't really understand him and what he really means and <clears throat> and not credit this um power to him and i just sorry i'm trying to just want to say it's like he was he's right you know like these there are these from the kind of zoomed out perspective there are these beings that are landing on earth you know and in the last let's say what's the 19 so yeah kind of 20 years and more and more uh, now that are like these incredible beings that are basically seeding the future generations mm. uh, on earth because the consciousness depending if you on perspective is is changing the vibration of the planet is changing and we're going through this very rapid evolution of actually coming more back to nature and to these empathetic beings that we are who are very very interconnected and very sensitive and highly intuitive and tapping into all of those abilities like Telepathic, what's the word? Tele tele telepathy. telepathy, thank you. Um, and so when you hear on a story, it's just, again, it's so easy to slip into oh, the drugs. It's like, we all have these drugs in our own body, right? Mm. They, they all exist. We take something to kind of access that part of ourselves to come back to a place of truth. And if you've uh, read or you know of Ram Das's story from when he went from Richard Alpert to Ram Das, it's a very helpful story to actually understand Ronnie a little more and, and what happened. And unfortunately, he just didn't have anyone to catch him because he couldn't share because of the harshness of his reality of being like, oh my gosh, like you can feel it that he's like, if I tell them, I'm going to hurt them, I'm going to scare mm. them because the consciousness was so far away from each other and that you needed this profound portal of death to, to take away the judgment for yourself <clears throat> so you wouldn't freak out and that you also, you and your mom, wouldn't pull away from it, that you would lean into it. Yeah. You know, of like there is beauty in trying these different things with an openness rather than the stigmatized way of looking at this is bad and this is good. Yeah. But his, his soul truly, these children that are coming through, these young people that are here and there's millions of them all over the planet, right, that are so sensitive and open and are kind of teaching all of us how we can be and each time we come this sort of reincarnation cycle of we're then coming back to the land but for some of us and for some of these children i want to say that that land in these with this kind of the soul of this essence that is so connected to the universe so connected to nature so connected to themselves and then they open their eyes and they look at the absolute madness of the systems and the structures and the complete slavery that we're living in, because that's what it is, their body can't even adjust 
And know? that's exactly what, what he was writing in his journals. Exactly Incredible. that. Exactly yeah. that. And he was, we discovered that um, things like Om, the sign Om, or um, Om Namah Shivaya became so important for him. And I had no idea. <clears throat> I had no idea that my brother was such on a spiritual path. Mm. And, um, and I know in my heart that it went beyond just, you know, like uh, a go-out party or just mm. partying per se. It was, it had a profound deep meaning for him and he was very, very um, uh, serious about, yeah, sincere about it and authentic about it. And, um, and yeah, so we, we also for the first time, uh, started to, uh, take LSD for my first time in my life. I, I, I took some micro dosage of LSD just to find out what, what it was for him. And I do not want to advocate drugs here at all. But what I'm saying is to really understand someone, you need to dive into their emotions mm. or their world and, and, um, yeah, really be really try to see it with with their eyes and not put your fears onto them. Mm. I, if he was alive, I would feel like I've let him down. I did something wrong in my responsibility or whatever. I've led him on a wrong path or I haven't given enough of whatsoever that he he went on a wrong path. Mm. Um, but it wasn't a wrong path. It was his path mm. and it was the the path that he he chose and um and yeah but of course there is so much guilt involved especially with with um with uh su suicide and especially for my mum of course and I think guilt always comes from when you act when you're not in alignment with yourself um so you can make mistakes, but you don't necessarily need to feel guilty about them because they taught you something. Um, but for her, yeah, it was very much noticing that she wasn't aligned with her instincts and wasn't acting on them. And so we um, got given this book um, from someone uh, after his funeral uh, about um, written by Dolly Rushley, which uh, as a Swiss um, medium and she wrote this book called Hello Hello Jenseits which means hello um, afterlife I guess mm. and so we were um, reading this book where she talks about uh, how she can connect with um, past spirits and what they've taught her and what they've taught her about the afterlife and it really really resonated with us it was the only thing that really spoke to both of us and my mum especially and so we tried to contact her and she was um very booked out but because uh I was about to go back needed to go back to New Zealand um um <clears throat> I was in Switzerland for about three months but yeah my time was nearly up there um she could squeeze us in and that was um another real real key moment for all of us um, because this lady Dolly she she didn't know anything about us nothing and <clears throat> she knew someone would have died but she didn't know who has died 
and um, so we arrived there and it was just in a normal room you sit opposite each other and she records it so she you can listen it at home and um, you just sit there and then she just tunes in and tells us who is here and she described um, my grandmother and um, my brother and another my grandmother's brother another family member who has passed and um, so she just describes physically who she sees or feels um, and then what their characteristics are and then how the feeling was when they died or how they died and um, it was about my grandmother first and then about mainly my brother and it was just spot on mm -hmm. it was spot on it went into real detail like she could say oh your grandmother she used to bake this specific cookie with a nut on top <laughs> and that's exactly right and um and she could uh tell us about roni or roni could tell us through her um that uh, uh um the scene that he was seeing and his, his just before death, his, the scenery, the place where it took place and, um, and that it was quite, um, he was very calm in his decision and he was very almost like a robot doing it, but that he was, his mind was completely yeah, made up and he was very looking forward to to, to go and it wasn't a moment of despair or stress it was a moment of complete calmness mm -hmm. and he was excited to go um, to his true self and um, she could tell us that after his death it started raining which is, which is all true she could tell us um, that he felt um, not regret for what he has done because he is now completely free and he enjoys that so much but that he now can see how much he hurted the people he left behind and that wasn't obvious that wasn't um, that just wasn't um, present for him he mm -hmm. couldn't feel that um, before he left he felt no one would really miss him probably because also he felt because he couldn't speak his truth uh, he felt no one not many really really see him and so I think it's so important to speak your honest truth um, because you so that you can see yourself and other people, it gives the allowance, the permission to other people to see your true self as well. And um, and yeah, it's not always pretty, but that's that's the confronting the ugliness with 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 love rather than fear and hiding it. And um, and he he just wanted to yeah let everyone know that we are free here on earth already and um he wanted to tell my mom and that there was nothing she could have done to to avoid it and that he's very very grateful for all that she has done and he wanted to let me know that he was describing new zealand and she didn't know um that i was going back to new zealand she just knew i had to go 
away. Uh, but yeah, she described when I'm sharing the sheep. <laughs> Um, that I should know that he's always with me and that um, he wants me to drive in a car just experience freedom with no top on and drive through hilly green hills and and so that was his way of communicating um, you know New Zealand and I should live there and, and free them and that we're actually all free on this earth and she even mentioned um, that there is something hidden on his grave and in a little box and we didn't even know. Um, but after that, we went to his grave and there was, sure enough, hidden a little box and in there was a necklace. And she, Dolly, said, or Orni said through Dolly, that um, that necklace doesn't belong to the grave. It needs to be worn. And this necklace was from his girl that he was very much in love with and they were never really together but she had deep feelings for him as well and um but she was in a relationship and she yeah never wanted to give that necklace to her actual partner so she brought it on the grave to Roni but he wanted that she wears that necklace and that he she moves on with with her life and lives her life and fully fully and that he is with her anyway um and so it just blew our minds and we were after that session we were sitting there we were like for the first time since he died my mom could laugh and and had tears and we was happy in that moment we were so 100% happy and 1000% sure that it was Roni and he was there and it clicked it clicked in my mind I, re I realized what the phrase means we are spiritual eternal beings having a human experience <laughs> that we are energy that we are souls that live on forever and I thought like why there's no one teaching us that. How <laughs> 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 could I not have known? And I, you know, before I, when I learned history, it made sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, then state and religion, they kept that apart. But now I can see instead of state and religion, it should be, or statism, um, you know, where there's a ruler from the outside telling us what we, um, how we should live our lives. Um, Slavery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that um, yeah. That when we investigate and and, and uh, learn about ourselves and and can achieve self mastery or self leadership through raising awareness, through looking into our traumas, um, and combine that with with faith with faith or spirituality so that it's not being taken advantage of by a human being or leader, you know, mm. as it often so happens in religion. But that that these two things very much need to be together and especially that spiritual faith um, path, um, if you, like, it can be so detrimental and so confusing and you lose your purpose of of life or 
you know there's something out there, but you don't really know. And I think that's what ultimately also um, led to to Ronnie's death, um, mm. that he couldn't, there was no one there to, as you so nicely said before, ca- catch him and mm. guide him and and teach him and how these things belong together and um, how having faith or believing in God um, doesn't, yeah, for me, God has a different meaning now. It's not an old man. It's it's um, conscious awareness and love and unity, but it comes, it's everywhere and it's in nature, but it's in us as well. It's mm. it's not someone I need to give my power to. It's, it's actually taking my power back mm. and not realizing it's coming from, from within. And um, yeah, and it was just this like, oh my God, yeah, I see now. And that's when we started to learn more and more about afterlife and what happens after death and what what is what does death even mean and and um looking into people who've had near death experiences and and um talking to other mediums and learning about um uh the tibetan philosophy of life and death mm. and things like that and when i came back shortly after that um to New Zealand, I knew, okay, I need to go on this path and I want to do yoga. And um, I was always a bit timid of yoga. I thought like, oh no, I won't be able to achieve the perfect Instagram photo, you know, and do a crazy pose. But um, a lot of people say that it's a lifestyle and it's union and mind, body, soul together. So maybe there's something in that. So yeah. I'll try it. <laughs> I'll give it a try. And and um, I knew, yeah, Orni just guided me on this path and and led me straight away to, to your yoga studio. And that's when journey part two <laughs> started. Um, but yeah, it just, it, it, showed me that um, life does not happen to you. It always happens for you. Mm. And when you experience pain, it's always a, a, a an alarm bell signaling, um, there's a challenge for you for transformation here. And can you listen to it? And can you approach it with curiosity and love and set your judgment mainly for yourself aside for a moment and follow follow it and um and when you do you move away from from deep suffering um and towards a thrilling seek of of your life purpose Mm. and through my brother's story and and investigating him um I, I, I am closer and closer finding my my life purpose and I realized that when he died, um, he became my teacher, mm-hmm. and um, and it's kind of a receiving and giving relationship. And I think for me, um, that's where I want to, yeah, um, keep going. Um, just learning and teaching, and learning and teaching, and um, I think that's what the best um, teachers, doctors philosophers 
whatever um make make yeah mm. oh so well said. <laughs> thank you for sharing part one yeah. <laughs> there's definitely part two and part three okay. <laughs> um and can just, i ask a question oh go on um it's a bit of a kind of long long-winded question but um in this world we exist in um sharing memes and quotes and all of these things that that people do in um not just the spiritual world but in this in this world of um of trying to understand how spirituality fits into life there's quite often people fall into the trap of um of the the spiritual bypassing the yeah. the idea of you know that everything happens for a reason um my question really for you around that is and it's probably a question that's very challenging to answer but um how can you come to terms with or how long does it take to come to terms with the the the, the grief stage the trauma stage before you can start to open up into the that everything happens for a reason stage because too often i think in this world as say spiritual teachers or people who are on this path and wanting to share it with others that we rush to the everything happens for a reason statement way too soon um and with something like a suicide or something like a shock death um not that now hearing the story in a lot more detail not that it was a huge shock there was still lots of clues but how how do you get to that stage what what had to happen for you or maybe what you notice happened for your mother as well would to get you from the shock trauma stage to the everything happens for a reason stage yes a very good question um don't say that to <laughs> don't say that ever to someone who has just yeah like there were a lot of people coming up to my mum you know saying like oh everything happens for a reason or time heals all wounds oh, the worst. and um, yeah and she could not yeah she just like she was nearly punching the people like you cannot deal with that they deserved it yeah <laughs> uh, what you can do is sit in the pain with someone and maybe silently or not say anything um but you don't have to prevent prove you know bring a solution like this and make mainly yourself feel better in that moment um but uh <clears throat> for us it was um again with dolly that medium where Ronnie explained together with her, explained to us that the, she said there are two types of, of suicides. Um, one where um, you just kind of take the easier way out or you just want to make it stop. And, um, but you haven't taken that learning from it. And so in the next reincarnation, you, you actually have to learn the same things again, or you keep going from where you left, where you've left. And it always leaves a lot of trauma for others around you. And actually, usually often accumulate it if you don't really dig deep into it. And, but there is another type of, 
suicide, where it is like um, Oni said it was in his soul contract, so he knew he was gonna that this was most likely gonna happen mm-hmm. um, in this in this life, um, because that's his way of fulfilling his life purpose. So that my mum and I, myself and a lot everyone that touches it around it can can become aware and can do the inner work that was so necessary and otherwise my mum would not have done her inner work mm-hmm. and I would not have done the inner work or definitely not on the same level as I'm doing now um, without that kind of portal of that death opened mm-hmm. us up to. But it's a spiral like I find um, I find sometimes I come to this term like everything happens for a reason because I can't take the pain at that moment. Mm. And then, yeah, and then um, I dig deep into it and deeper into it and then I come to realize, oh no, everything does actually happen for a reason. But then there's another layer and it's like, oh no, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I just wanted to believe that because that pain was real and I still ask myself was his his death um inevitable or could we have Mm. could it could it have um been prevented and I think the answer is definitely yes I think there was was every um possibility but Mm. it happened so he chose that and I have to respect his choice and that I have to um, acknowledge and give him all the credit that he can, I don't know better for him, that Mm. he knows what was best for him and for his soul contract and for all of us. And so I do trust him deeply that this was, was what was supposed to happen, but it still needs me to look into the pain whenever it comes up and also look into my own moment of guilt and grief and shame and what whenever I learn something I just kind of come to the same crossroad or point again in the spiral but mm-hmm. I just see it a bit from a different perspective or, a, or on a deeper level or yeah, just from another point of view. So I think it's, yeah, it's kind of a going around, around. And I do always come back to that, but it takes, it takes, um, effort as well. And I think, um, yeah, there is just noticing when do you use it because it seems the easier way. And when do you come to that conclusion from a, deep understanding and of an embodied feeling where you feel like mm-hmm. actually I am grateful for Roni's journey because uh, it made me who I am here and I'm not more limited through that trauma mm-hmm. I'm actually I have gained more freedom through that trauma mm-hmm. beautifully said and it's you know it's such an illustration for those listening to be able to see your level of self-awareness and reflection because like within that spiral because of the 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 portal of the pain and the trauma your ability to question is so profound 
Although I think that very much is a quality of you. You know, we've only known you <laughs> post Ronnie's passing where it's, you've always stepped up to the challenge to reflect and to always question. And then to, I think it's that ability to have a sense of humility to be like, oh, where am I out of line? You know, where, where am I maybe got it wrong or where am I at fault? Without victimizing yourself, but putting that question always in there as well has allowed you to go deeper and deeper into your mm. own work, which means faster. much faster. Yeah. And also because Ronnie gave you that gift of like, oh, was that my fault that he died? Like what mm. a profound question where most people stop right there. Oh, was it my fault not looking at that, victimize himself? Oh, my brother died. Oh, poor me. Not saying that that's a bad response. Mm. It's definitely a very limited response where not much comes from it, where you've been like, ah, oh, yeah, I guess I could have been responsible and then allowed yourself to feel that horrendous pain, right? Yeah. Which then, in, when you did that work there and that point of your spiral, it's now a blueprint for how you do all your work in so many other places. Mm. And that is a profound gift, not only for your own self-awareness journey, but for how you teach and you interact with others. And I think this is the greatest thing that we're given these lessons, we're given these opportunities to heal ourselves, right? To come home to ourselves, to be in a reflective space, but to then share truth with everybody else. Like you say, we're always the teacher and the student, but profoundly in a very somatic embodied way, which is what you're doing and what we love about you and are so inspired um, to have seen and be, we've been very privileged to witness a lot of this journey um, because you are doing it in real time. You live with a lot of integrity uh, and a lot of awareness and you're always sharing it with others and holding yourself and others to that kind of standard, you know, of reflection and integrity. So thank you for your service to humanity. Aww, and thank, thank you, you to Ronnie for your <laughs> sacrifice. Um, and everything you've done and everything you've taught us. He's been a huge part of our journey and we never met him Earthside. So thank you, Ronnie. Mm. Yes. Thank you, Jess. Yeah, at, at his funeral, I said something. I don't know where it came from, but I've reread it now, um, preparing for this podcast. And um, again, with the analogy of him being now a bird, um, I said, oh, in my heart, I can see how you are spreading your wings and easily become one with um, the higher healing force until you yourself become the that healing force. Mm. Damn. Yeah. yeah. Where did that come from? And that's yeah. really what I feel. Yeah. The moment of the, 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 the dualism merging into the non-dual awareness of all. Yes. Yeah. 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 Quite profound. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank mm. you very much for joining us today. And thank you. We're going to put a pin in this as a to be continued <laughs> because I think it is definitely a. Um, uh, it's a great part too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very much worth exploring. Um, Thanks again so much for yeah. having me and yeah. Mm. Really and Om Namashivaya. Om Namashivaya. Yes, Om Namashivaya. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank, Thank you all for Love listening. You. And uh, we will be back with another episode before you know it. The Radical Awareness Podcast.